it usually will take an ideology or a system of thought like capitalism or Marxism in the case of my studies and says, okay, these are the ideals of Marxism and capitalism. How do we live out those ideals in our economic policy and functioning? And that fascinated me. It, it just opened my eyes that um, these ideologies could be so strong and could structure how um, countries structured their economic policies. Welcome to the Bridge Beyond English podcast. This is an English podcast that will help you expand your creative thinking, global awareness, and cross-cultural communication skills so that you can connect more deeply with the world. I'm your host, David Nagai. This episode is about empire. Throughout history, we've seen many empires rise and fall. Now we have the American superpower, or empire, and people are wondering if China might be the next superpower, or empire. This episode is the first of a three-part series about empire. In all three episodes, I interview Missy Hart. Missy is an American living in Yokohama, Japan. Her current work has been acting as a peace and reconciliation consultant, which means that she communicates between different religious groups in order to create peace and a deeper connection between diverse communities and ways of thinking and being in the world. She has a background in teaching in churches as a pastor or preacher, doing social work among poor communities, and has studied theology and religion, among many other things. I'm so delighted to introduce you to Missy Hart. Missy Hart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, David. Thank you for asking me to be here today to talk about a subject that's really uh, dear to my heart. Yes, I'm very excited about it. So how did you get introduced to the concept of empire? Well, I kind of stumbled into it. <laughs> When I attended uh, university in my freshman year, my first semester, I drew a really horrible lottery number to pick classes. Like I was one of the last people to be able to pick my classes. And so there wasn't a lot of um, classes uh, available, or there weren't a lot of classes available for me to choose from. And one of them was an class on Introduction to Macroeconomics. Were you an economics major? 
No. <laughs> and I'm pretty bad at math. And what made it even worse is that the class was not full because it was taught by a really good professor, but hard professor. And he graded hard. And I knew that the class would be a challenge to me. And so I wanted to kind of stay away from it. But I really had no choice. And I had to take the class. And I was so happy that I did. So macroeconomics is the study of uh, how uh, countries and um, economic systems work on a large scale. So it often, um, it, the topics that are covered in macroeconomics is like taxation rates, regulation, um, policy on funding, um, about poverty, interest rates, all those kind of things. And it also deals with ideology. So it usually will take an ideology or a system of thought like capitalism or Marxism, in the case of my studies, and says, okay, these are the ideals of Marxism and capitalism. How do we live out those ideals in our economic policy and functioning? And that fascinated me. It, it just opened my eyes that um, these ideologies could be so strong and could structure how um, countries structured their economic policies. So that was my introduction into ideology. And from there, um, now you have to remember when I was in uh, university, was back in the early 1980s. So I'm dating myself maybe a little bit. But uh, in the 1980s, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union had been going on for at least about 40 years. And so it had become kind of ingrained and it had become um, kind of an old structure that where the United States and the Soviet Union kind of did a dance back and forth together and were very familiar with that dance. And the purpose of the dance over time became this very strange phenomenon called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. Yeah. So you're guaranteed to destroy each other. That's correct. If the United States hits the nuclear button first, Russia still would have enough time, the Soviet Union would still have enough time to launch their missiles, and we would both be obliterated. So we didn't want that to happen. <laughs> so we would engage in um, these talks um, and treaties with each other to determine what was the acceptable amount of nuclear weapons that we both could have and how much money we would spend on it. And we spent a lot of money on our weaponry, both of us, even though we were living under this mad policy. So that fascinated me, that uh, a world could be structured between two superpowers who 
we're to engage in this dance of mutual assured destruction. And this kind of opened also the, uh, the door into, well, why is it that there's only two superpowers mm. in the world? And who has nuclear weapons? And why doesn't everybody have nuclear weapons? And what does it mean to have nuclear weapons? And why does the United States have so many nuclear weapons and tells other countries not to have nuclear weapons? Exactly. How did they get that power? And where did that power come from? So, that, so, so mm-hmm. this is empire. Mm-hmm. But empire sounds like an older word. Mm-hmm. Uh, people use the word superpower for the U.S., or what word did you use once when we were talking? Uh, imperialism. Imperialism, right. Colonialism. Right. Um, a lot of the phenomenon that happened, especially in the 1600s through 1800s, when particularly with Western Europe, through the technology of sailing, <laughs> learned to be able to go around the world and begin to carve it up for the purposes of its own power. Right. Okay, so in university you were introduced to different ideologies mm-hmm. and the concept of empire, mm-hmm. and you examined your own American identity and culture within that, mm-hmm. and your country's history and trajectory where it was headed, uh, how did you continue on the journey of understanding empire? Well, after university, I joined empire. Uh, I had to get a job because I had a lot of student debt, which is one way that empire uh, controls people is through debt. And so I had to work. And so I went to work for a large insurance conglomerate whose wealth was not based on means of production, but on asset management and creating wealth through not means of production, but asset management. And Can you explain that a little more, uh, how insurance focuses on asset management? Right. So in, with insurance, uh, what the company would do to make money was both to sell insurance policies to people, hoping that people would not have to use those policies, right? So that's one way that they gain money. But then they quickly learned that if they take that money that's given to them by the people that they insured, that they can invest that money into the stock market, into real estate, and now into a lot of different um, um, financial products. Right, just like a bank. Yes, just like a bank. Right. Okay, so you were working for insurance, and that was part of this capitalistic part of the empire. Right. Well, can you explain more why you feel it's part of the empire? Because wealth accumulation that happens separate from the means of production. And means of production would mean, like, if I'm a farmer, I grow 
my crops and I take it and I sell it. And there's a there's an exchange of what I will get paid based on how much work I've done and how well I've done that work. Wealth creation that is separated from the means of production has over time a tendency to continue to grow exponentially greater than wealth creation through means of production. I, I can maybe make my soil better, but there's only so much I can do to make that soil better and to make my crops bigger. Maybe after a while, if I save up enough money, I can buy more land or better seed. But it's going to take me some time. But with asset management, the growth happens quicker. Right. It's an institution or organization that gets so much money that they can have an extra huge increase in their investment. And then that group, maybe not even just one person, but that group of investors or the leaders in that organization, they get super rich. Right. And their interests change. When I'm a farmer, I am concerned about the soil. I'm concerned about the rain, temperatures, um, what my neighbor's doing that might affect me. <laughs> but if I am only engaged in wealth um, accumulation and growth, my interests change. My safety <laughs> And what I consider to be safe changes. And it doesn't necessarily connect to people, to the climate. <laughs> right. So as a farmer, you care about people like your neighbors mm -hmm. and the planet mm -hmm. because that's the foundation of your business and profit as well. But it's all this interconnected people, planet, profit so in insurance, you were part of the empire, and so you realized that as you were there? How did that feel, and then what, what happened next? I didn't realize it. You didn't realize it? I did it. not realize it while I was in it, and in fact, benefited from it economically. So this is another way, is that you pay people enough that they kind of sometimes become anesthetized to how they're not paying attention. And, um, so they kind of become numb right. to the whole experience. The insurance conglomerate allowed me to pay some of my student loans. So I was thankful <laughs> for the conglomerate, actually, for giving me this job and that job stability. Yeah, and it was good because you could pay off your debt, buy food, you need to survive. So what's the problem? Right. And it gave me the American dream, mm. which meant I could buy a house and incur more debt. Okay. Right. So um, it... It has a tendency to keep you within the system. So it, it wants to create a healthy middle class who are good citizens. You're talking about empire. Empire, to, yeah. right. Empire wants to create good citizens, middle class, vote, go to work, keep working for these big <laughs> conglomerates, 
they're satisfied so they don't need any change. They right. don't need to do anything because they're satisfied or pacified. They're threatened by change. And so, again, they become a little more conservative and really blind to the needs of others. And in America, we have suburbs. And this is the, during this whole empire building in the United States, the suburb, there was a mass exodus out of the cities into the suburb. So exodus means to leave. To leave. To go out. Right. And the American dream was to buy a house. And in these houses, you have a fence in your backyard, and you play in your backyard. You only interact with people who look like you, think like you, and have the same values as you. And you then tend to consider as threat anybody who kind of makes you feel uncomfortable. So people of a different race Mm -hmm. or religion Mm -hmm. or background makes me feel threatened. Right. Right. And, and we lose the ability to interact with difference. So, so maybe if we, even if we don't feel threatened, we just don't, have, we don't know what to do with it's difference. It's awkward or uncomfortable. That's right. So then it's easier to stay within your group. Right. Okay, so how did you, what was the next step in your awareness of empire? Um, once we had our son... I stopped working, and I did not grow up in a um, religious household, Uh, and I always wondered about religion, Uh, wondered what people were doing inside of a church. Yeah, what are they doing? What are they doing? Singing songs, (laughs) drinking blood. (laughs) And speaking another language with words I didn't know, and that they would know I was an outsider. So I didn't want that for my son. I didn't necessarily desire that he be religious. I just wanted him to have the experience so that he could make up his own mind on his faith. So we started to attend a church uh, down the street from my house. Like a a Christian church. A Christian uh, evangelical main uh, stream church. And it was there that I read the Bible for the first time and started to talk to other people. And what I saw so much in the Bible reminded me and brought me back to my university days where I was thinking about empire, because there's so much about empire in the Bible, both good and bad. And what I really liked Uh, especially in the Bible, was the teachings about how to go against empire. That that we can fight empire. That we can fight systems that are destructive to people. Who leave people hungry, sick, and homeless. Uh, So that fascinated me. And my church um, looked like my neighborhood. 
You mean they were white, middle-class Americans? Americans, right. Two cars in the garage, you know, sending their kid to the uh, best schools that they could do. But very close to where I lived was a very poor section of town and where many poor black people lived and where there were a lot of poor black missionary Baptist churches. You mean missionary churches from... That, that are... The, the name of the denomination is Missionary Baptist Church. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So these were black churches that were very poor, but who were often leaders in helping the poor around them. And we, the white church, the rich white church, would give money to the poor black church to take care of the poor black problems. And in reading the Bible, I thought that we were supposed to do more than that. So I started to work with a poor black man named James. James had no teeth. I don't think he had an education past third grade, but he was extremely smart and extremely prophetic, which means he felt this strong desire to lift up the poor. Prophetic. Prophetic. So he was a prophet. A prophet. And he was meant to expose the bad, what was causing this poverty, and to lift the people out of poverty. Because that's what a prophet does. It exposes and lifts up. And so I started to work with James because I could write grants. I could speak fancy. And so I could interact with all these agencies that we needed to interact with in order to start um, a program to house homeless families in the area. So we did that. And it took a couple years, but we opened our first house and invited a a family of of six in, four young children and a, a mother and a father. And we found a job for the parents, we found schooling for the children, we found access to benefits and all of that. Within four months, we got a call from the police and the parents had abandoned the children and left. And then we heard this, oh, see, this is what happens when you help the poor. They don't want your help. And I just couldn't agree with that, that that was the problem. I said, something's wrong that is causing homelessness. And I started to look beyond just the homeless, but began to see it as a structure within our community where black people and poor people lived in one section and rich white people lived in another section. And because of that, the rich had access to more, better education, um, better everything, cheaper goods, and, and the poor were left in this cycle of seeing all of the rich stuff but not being able to attain it. They couldn't access it. They were stuck in this system that you would call empire? Empire. Yeah. 
empire uh, tends to want to keep divisions, to keep um, societies a little bit destabilized so that they can manipulate. And there, there will always be an enemy and always a them to distract us from what empire is doing. There's always a them and us uh-huh. separation. Right. So there's kind of this this constant fear of losing what we have, losing our power, our safety, our security, our wealth. That's our right. Our privilege. Our privilege. That there isn't enough for everybody. So we have to hold on to what what we have. Who who is controlling empire? You talk about empire like it's a person. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> Uh, which is great and helpful. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about who is controlling empire. Well, I think, you know, in in olden times, uh, in the times of when the Bible was written, you had empire like the Roman Empire, before that the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. And those empires tended to be structured around a single person or a single family. A king or a royal family. That's right, a pharaoh or that type of thing. And they built structures around them to keep their wealth and power. Current empire is a little bit different. (laughs) How so? Current empire is more... It's still, com- it's still wealth, but it's wealth within the, hand- within the hands of the top percentage of people. So like the elite. The elite. Politically and economically powerful. Right. So the, the economic elite, I think, are the primary drivers, but they incorporate within their sphere of influence... Uh, political power, the power of the academy. Universities. Universities. Explain that. So in order for empire to have a foundation and to keep going, it needs to produce ideology that hides what's going on, really. (laughs) And you learned about empire and ideology in university. In university, (laughs) right. Right. That's confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, so, but then that's really funny you say that because we were learning it like as a textbook. And you're making air quotes. I'm making air quotes. Quote, unquote, textbooks. That's right. This is, you know, and, and then... Even though we were taught Marxism, Marxism wasn't good. Okay, it was a, to show that that's why capitalism is so good—the ideology of capitalism. So in university, we are often allowed a little glimpse into our own ideology and others' ideologies, but only a glimpse. Enough exposure to the truth and the reality to feel like we understand the truth, but not enough 
deep critique of the system that helps us right. keep our empire going. Because remember, there's student debt. So which, he, which means? It means that even if you come out of university as a radical, wanting to fight empire, the likelihood that you are going to be able to do so is slim to zero. Because either you are going to be so poor because you have so much debt that you won't be effective. You, you will go live in those neighborhoods where James lives. Mm -hmm. And you'll be a prophet, but you won't be able to affect change. Uh, or you will, like I did, will join Empire to get rid of that debt. Okay, so... What was the end result of that experience with James and helping the poor community? What did you learn and where did that take you? It convicted me that the church had become um, incorporated into empire, that it was complicit with empire. The fact that I could see a white church and a black church in completely different economic situations, functioning in completely different ways, made me aware that the church was somehow a part, playing a part in empire, keeping us quiet, keeping the prophet quieted. Which seems like contradictory to the Bible that you were reading. <laughs> so there's some irony there, right? <laughs> There, there was, yeah, it, 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 it was a, a almost surreal. I just, I couldn't understand why was I reading this stuff in the Bible and it, what I was participating in didn't look anything like it or the message that I was getting from the Bible. So I believed that I had to learn more about my faith and about the function and role of the church. And so I went to divinity school. Okay. Believing that eventually um, that I was supposed to be a part of the church that would stand alongside of James and be prophetic. And divinity school is a fancy name for study to become a priest or a pastor in a church so study the Bible, study theology, study how to lead the church. That's correct. And almost um, immediately also what you study in, in school is the history of the church. And that's when my eyes opened. Because Christianity, when it was first formed, and when Jesus walked this earth was anti-empire. Jesus was speaking against the Roman Empire and was healing people and was raising people up and um, telling them that they were worth something, even though Roman Empire was telling them they weren't. So in our next episode, part two, we will continue this fantastic journey of your discovery of empire and your connection to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Thank you so much, Missy.
Thank you. Okay, so that was the first episode of a three-part series about Empire, an interview with Missy Hart. If you want to be sure to catch the next episode, feel free to subscribe so you never miss any episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast and want it to spread to more people, feel free to write a review in any language and leave a rating. If you are interested in using English to improve your creative thinking, global awareness, and cross-cultural communication skills, you can join a free trial class online or in Yokohama Motomachi. You can click the link in the show notes for more information or just visit us at Bridge beyondenglish.com I'm your host David Nagai Thank you so much for listening We'll see you next time